Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I am Steve Lord. I am joined by Carol Petz. Hello. Hello and Hughes. Hello. As we take you through the last week or so in film. Um, last week, Carol won the quiz. Gave yes, us, I did. Gave us uh, <laughs> me and Owen a film to watch, and it was called The Room. Yeah, Tom's a very generous term for what it is. And <laughs> now we've got to talk about that. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. What, what more do you... It's, you know, Prince Charles run a, a screening of it at least once a month. It spawned a, a best-selling uh, book, and it's soon to spawn an actual film about the making of the film with Seth <laughs> Rogen and James Franco. What more do you want? Seriously. Well, I, I was so happy I was playing football manager while watching this. That, <laughs> that I didn't actually feel like I'd wasted that time. I felt like I'd done something productive while doing what How could you possibly mess- keep up with the plot if you're playing football manager there, at the same time? There is no plot. There, there are, is a plot. There are subplots that don't go anywhere. There are there are things that don't get resolved. There's just people that pop in and out and, and <laughs> you don't make any sense. You've never heard of them before. It, it's just it's garbage. It's uh, it's not so bad as good. It's so bad. It should be like everyone should get their mo- who's seen it needs to get their mind erased with one of them Men in Black things. Yeah, I'm actually pretty impressed that you even watched it, Steve. To be <laughs> I didn't think you were going to do it. I knew Owen would because he's a man of his word. I'm gotten for gotten for punishment, apparently. But <laughs> of all the bad films that we've picked for each other, you know, Cutthroat Island was one of the most boring ridiculous films we've had. Movie 43 sucked balls. But this... <laughs> this is possibly the worst that we've had so far. I think the, you mean the best. <laughs> no, I just had on Twitter the worst worst. Not the worst <laughs> best. It is appalling. Absolutely. I can't believe you didn't even enjoy like the four gratuitously long sex scenes. <sighs> one of which is basically just offcuts of, of another one that's just come immediately <laughs> before it. Yeah. What was that about? Why did <laughs> just not shitty R and B pop music that's in every single scene? Oh my god! <laughs> I haven't gotten over it yet. It's just it's just brilliant. There's a there's a really good. Um, uh, YouTube series uh, by, I think it's by a channel called Cinema Sins and it basically counts up everything that's wrong with the film and this <laughs> this one got about, I don't know, 3 billion points or something uh, so that's that's a recommendation on its own I think. But anyway it's great and you're all wrong. It's, oh, it's, it's not great, really. It's, it's great. It's not. Uh, it's it's so, it's so, 
misogynistic as well. What the hell is this woman is evil and then she lies and it's all yeah, but but Johnny's great. Johnny's a really strange guy. <laughs> Everyone loves I Johnny. I particularly like the bit in the in the florist shop where he just sort of like he has his sunglasses on and he takes his sunglasses off and she goes, Oh, it's you, Johnny. You're my favourite customer. Exactly. Like, you're actually like the most distinctive person in the world. <laughs> You're my favourite customer. He's <laughs> like a weird mix of John claude Van Damme and Chris, uh, Christopher Walken. The way he speaks is just the most bizarre pronunciation of words I've seen in a film ever. <laughs> strange, so you enjoyed strange it, man. right? Right, good. Oh, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad that everyone enjoyed it. Basically, <laughs> to anyone who's listening, never watch The Room. Never do watch The Room. Never ever subject <laughs> yourself. To the utter tripe as it is. Everyone exactly. needs to watch the room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, do some quizzing. I've got to do some quizzing. Alright, so I'm going to start off. I am, I am going to do this in chronological order. You're doing it properly. I'm doing it in old style. And I'm going to start off in 2004 with Shaun of the Dead. Steve. Is it, yep. it Rafe Spall? It is Rafe Spall! What? How did you even get that from? <laughs> I just had the, I was thinking, right, 2000, if you're going in, doing it properly like I do, 2004 is going to be relatively young. Sean the Dead, he's in it a little bit, and he's he pretty is. young in that. He is. So, yeah. Um, this is, un, un, this is, shen, I'm claiming shenanigans. There's some consp- conspiracy going on. Prove it. There must be a conspiracy. I do not believe Steve got Rafe's ball from just Shaun <laughs> of the Dead. It's a reasonable choice. If you're not going to go in, in for the obvious ones of Simon Pegg and, and Nick Frost, well, I, suppose I, suppose quite could have, I suppose you could have gone Simon Pegg or Nick Frost with that one because it's probably the first film they're actually in. Yeah, probably. So, yeah, hmm. I think you're probably right, actually. But, but yeah, I was thinking 2004, so they must be young. Uh, but if Owen can prove any shenanigans, then I'm more than happy relinquish the point, but he won't because I just got it because I was clever. He <laughs> was also in uh, Green Street. I don't remember him in Green Street, although I've only, to be fair, I've only seen it once. He was and I don't he... even think I've seen it all the way through there. I don't think I want to rewatch Green Street just to see no. if he's in it. I'll just take, no, I'll just take the word either. for it. <laughs> I'll just take IMDb's word for it. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't remember him in Green Street. I can remember Elijah Wood, and I can remember some guy doing a really bad Cockney accent. And Charlie, Charlie, what's his face is in it? Uh, Charlie Hunnam from uh, Pacific Rim. The main, but, the main hooligan. Yeah, but before that, I think he was only probably best known for Queer as Folk, so that was quite a, quite, quite a, a leap. Yeah. <laughs> well, both involved grappling with men in some way or another. <laughs> That's very true. That's very yep. true. So, so well done, Steve. You are one up in the quiz. Owen is, Owen is fuming. I can tell. Silently, yeah. Onto the news, and there's only one real bit of news we could find this week, and that was the uh, the British Independent Film Awards have uh, nominations have been revealed, uh, as, as Carol called them, the Biffers. Uh, they have been have been revealed. <laughs> with, I think they're four um, British films that are made for less than twenty million pound. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. That's right. Um, 71 has, has cleared up with nine nominations overall. Well, not cleared up yet, because I've, I've announced, but it's got nine nominations overall. Hmm. Um, Which I'm not that surprised about, because it's a really good film. Yeah, it was an excellent film, and 
as I've said, both in my written review and my review on the podcast, worthy of any awards that it gets nominated for, really. Yeah, and the film, as well as your reviews. Um, So, for for Best British Independent Film, you've got uh, 71, Cavalry, Mr. Turner, Pride, and The Imitation Game, all up for that one. Um, Imitation Game isn't out yet, that's the Alan Turing biopic, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was about yet. Cavalry is one I've not heard of myself. So, is, has that been released or is that? Yeah, it's, I think it might be on Netflix now. Actually, I, re- I remember someone saying Possibly. it is. Uh, Brendan Gleeson is a member of the church. I haven't seen it myself, but I do know a few people that saw it and they said it was very good. I, well, James watched it at Glasgow Film Festival. Um, oh, well, I said watched it. He fell asleep whilst he was watching it, which I swears <laughs> is an, um, a com- uh, you know a comment on the actual quality of the film. He was just very we've, tired. We've all done it. We've all done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then Pride, which you saw, Carol, I think, was that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then obviously Seventy One and Mr. Turner, which Owen is reviewing later on. Best director um, had John Michael McDonough for Cavalry. Lenny Abrahamson for Frank, uh, Matthew Waters for Pride, Mike Lee for Mr. Turner, and Jan Demange for 71. You know, of the two, I'm really glad 71 got nominated. I don't think it'll win either of those two awards, though. I think, I think Pride will probably clean up. You think Pride? Yeah. See, I think Imitation Game or Mr. Turner. Maybe. Mr. Turner sounds like the kind of film that would clear up at these kind of awards without me sounding too judgy about anyone. No, I know what you mean. It's, yeah. There's a lot of kind of... I think... Sorry. I was just going to say, there's a lot of um, weight behind it at the moment. A lot of uh, momentum it's building. I think maybe people, maybe the, the biffers... As I, I'm now calling also the, the judges <laughs> and jury, <laughs> um, will probably think it's been recognised elsewhere because obviously it picked up uh, prizes in Cannes and it's probably going to be on the Oscar radar as well. And Pride Possibly. won't necessarily be uh, be there, so maybe this is their, their chance to, to reward it. I don't know. Uh, mm. Best actress, we've got Alicia Vikander for Testament of Youth, uh, Chang Pei-Pei for... Uh, Lilting. Uh, yeah. They're not making this easy for me, are they? Pronunciation <laughs> wise. Uh, Gugu Mbappa, Raw for Bell, Kira Knightley, I can do that one for the imitation game. Uh, and Samina Javine Ahmed for Catch Me Daddy. Can't say I've heard of many of those films, if I'm honest. I missed Bell. I was tempted to go and see it, but I just missed it. Um... I couldn't find it playing. Uh, I saw loads of loads of trailers for it, and I thought I quite fancy seeing that, but I couldn't. It wasn't playing anywhere near me, which was. Quite I heard annoying. it's actually quite a good political drama. It's billed yeah. as it looked like from the adverts and from the poster, even that it was a kind of period romance type story. But apparently, it's a, and actually quite a, a decent British um, political drama. Well, yeah, you'd be missing you'd be missing the point massively if you just made it a romantic drama. Oh yeah, it? absolutely, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, um, best actor, there's a load of names I can pronounce in that one. Uh, Asa Butterfield in X plus Y, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Imitation Game, Brendan Gleeson in Cavalry, Jack O'Connell in 71, and Timothy Spall in Mr. Turner. That seems like quite a, a, a heavyweight category. Hmm. All of them at the minute are um, critics' darlings, aren't they? I mean, Asa Butterfield's got a lot of uh, press as well. And, of course, Timothy Spall who I'll talk about later, is, is fantastic. One of the best performances I've seen this year. 
the Jack O'Connell as well, uh, Benedict Cumberpatch, they're all, I mean, Brendan Gleeson as well, but they are, like you said, the heavyweights, I think. This is the toughest category, I would think. Uh, um, best documentary, um, which I'd actually seen, um, more of than anyone else last year, I think, out of me, mm. you and, me, you and James, um, which was quite surprising. Yeah. Uh, 20,000 days on Earth, next goal wins, night will fall, the possibilities are endless, and Virunga. Obviously, I'm really happy to see next goal wins, um, in there. Especially as we kind of got involved as a start from, well, not from the start, but from when all the publicity for it started coming out, and we've been kind of, going along with it from there. Um, so yeah, personally, I'm really happy to see that one nominated. But I don't think it'll win, because I, I don't think you kind of learn enough. It's not kind of as, as meat as, as some documentaries will be, and I expect one of the others will probably win, but it's nice to see it in there. I'm going to stick my neck out and say, uh, I haven't seen it, but I think the possibilities are endless. It's got a really strong chance there. Everyone I know who's seen it raves about it. It's... Um, a documentary about Edwin Collins. I don't know whether either of you guys know anything about Edwin Collins. He used to be a pop star and then he had a massive stroke. Um, he still performs. And when he performs, he's completely, um, you know, he sounds completely as he always did. But it, And he is getting better, but he's had lots of kind of speech problems and stuff. But um, I sat next to a guy at Salvation, actually, when I was at the film festival and we got chatting, and he had been to see it the night, the week before, and he was just raving about it. So <laughs> I, I really do need to, to catch it if it gets a theatrical release. Yeah, it looks like you're leading the with the most views of the documentaries again this year, Steve. <laughs> with one. <laughs> Not often that that works. Well, doesn't happen quite often. I don't know how this keeps happening. Maybe I'm just more educated than everyone else. That's definitely it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Fix. <laughs> it's it's not. Sorry, yeah, I was okay. going to go Timothy Spool, but I was having a bit of a problem with, so I went with his son instead, because <laughs> <laughs> he's got a long old uh, credit history, Timothy Spool. Who was he in uh, Shaun of the Dead, then? I don't really he, remember him. He, he, He's the lad that works in the shop. With, um, with Shaun, who, who, yeah. who gets... Oh, yeah. That one. Yeah, who gets, yeah, the, yeah, who gets oh, Nick Frost the drugs. Or his yeah, you can't recognise him, because he's actually quite chubby. Yeah. He mm. And he's really, he's really fit now. He doesn't really look anything like Rave Spool, does he? Anyway? No, he doesn't at all. Yeah. I, I had to look twice when someone told me it was him. But yeah, he's, he's in about three scenes, isn't he? Yeah, and then he's at the bit, yeah, because he's, he's at the end, they've basically made him into like a trolley monkey at yeah. Asda or something. And one of the scenes he's in, he's on the phone, and like, yeah. you can't see him. What we've been watching now then, when we take a look at the films we've seen over the last seven days, it might not necessarily be uh, new releases. Carol, you received something this week from the EM Foundation, you keep sending us lots of things at the moment. Yes, I did receive um, the a copy of the Blu-ray, a UK Blu-ray premiere of Spirited Away, which is just an amazing film anyway, so I was very, very happy to have a copy of it on Blu-ray. Um, basically, it's coming out on November 24th, but there's also a big, massive set of old Miyazaki's films uh, on Blu-ray coming out in December, which has immediately gone onto my, my Christmas list. <laughs> it's a horrendous amount of money, obviously, but... Um, 
yeah, it, it looks it looks absolutely amazing. And if the transfers are anything near as good as, as the ones for Spirited Away, it would be well worth the money because it looks so beautiful. I actually have the DVD um, copy as well, and I did a bit of a side-by-side comparison. Um, and just it just it just all looks gorgeous. The, the colours are amazing. The colours are so rich, and you know the, it's just pin sharp. It's absolutely incredible. Um, if you haven't seen the film, uh, which I'm, I don't know whether most people will will have done, because it essentially is a kids' film, but it's one of the kind of highly most highly regarded um, Ghibli films. Um, it focuses on a young girl called Chihiro who uh, moves to a new uh, house with her parents. Uh, but they don't even get to the house before some magic uh, besets her parents and they be- they get turned into pigs. And the rest of the film is her basically trying to save her parents who've been turned into pigs. And it's just, it's ridiculous. It's it's just so inventive. When you look at some of the absolute crap that some people come out with mm-hmm. for kids, and then you look at this and there's, you know, ba- massive babies being turned into hamsters and things like, you know, just, you know, just, as a as a rite of passage, you know, it's just kind of happened. Just deal with it. Um, it's just it's ridiculous, but it's so it's so beautiful. It's so beautifully drawn. Um, yeah, the animation's amazing. The, the story is really nice. It's quite it's quite simple, really. But um, you know, it's just full of kind of twists and turns, and there are just these scary, crazy characters that turn up. Um, but it's fantastic, and and the Blu-ray just does look amazing. Um, there's a few extras on there. I haven't got any extras on my DVD. I don't know whether any whether these are all Blu-ray premieres or not. There's a um, there's a lot of stuff with John Lasseter because John Lasseter is basically like the proxy for Studio Ghibli in the Western world. And um, so there's an introduction by him, and then there's like a feature where you meet Miyazaki. Um, there's all the Japanese trailers which are like 20 minutes long, all put together, which is a bit weird. But um, there's like a making of, which is quite long. I didn't manage to get through all of it because I was guiding myself for the room, obviously. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's fantastic. And if you're a Ghibli fan like me, you're going to absolutely love it. I think it's well worth the upgrade, personally. Uh, will be for us. Our DVD is from Hong Kong, so it doesn't play over here on our DVD player. But um... Well, that was a bit silly. I know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's, it's not one of my personal favourites. Ghibli films, which really? is kind of sacrilegious. Yeah, I, I was never really into the fantasy ones. I prefer sort of the more reality-based. Well, great films. with the fireflies, you like. Yeah, yeah and Whisper of the really Heart, upset. and yeah, yeah, I do. I love it. It's one of my favourite things. Sometimes I just go, no, I don't do anything. Else. <laughs> but the um, <laughs> the fantasy ones have never really done it for me. But the one thing that's that's true about all of them is the animation in 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 every single one is sort of breathtaking and particularly spirited away i think there's some absolutely fantastic designs um in that film the dragon stuff with all the paper and things i can't imagine that that would look anything less than stunning on uh, on blu-ray but um, yeah i think we've had it it's come up on the podcast a few times actually because we had the studio ghibli um uh, Corridor of Praise um, uh, sometime last year, I think, or possibly the year before. And I think Jerry as well picked it for for his decade in film series. And, you know, it's critically uh, accepted as being one of their best. It, it was, was it the first to win the Best Animated Feature as well for the uh, Academy Awards? So yeah, first anime ever but, to win the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. Yeah. 
so yeah, there's a lot of um, uh, you know critical praise and swagger that comes with with, with Spirit Away. But yeah, personally, it's not not one of my favourites. But I can yeah imagine, totally imagine it looks brilliant on Blu-ray. I think what raises it above, I, I love uh, My Neighbor Totoro and I love uh, Princess Mononoke's one, probably my favourite one actually. Um, but I think the the whole thing in Spirit Away, the thing that I love about it so much is it, it's a fairly long film. It's over two hours. Uh, which is quite long for a kid's film. But I've never... I, I used to watch it with my brother because he was very young when it came out. And he was always just completely... He would sit completely still through it all. Um, and it's just like the the idea that you have this young girl and she's quite naive when when it starts. But by the end, she's just completely... You know, there, there's this whole journey that she's been on. I know it, sound, it makes it sound a bit like an episode of The X Factor. But um, it's just, it's totally believable and it's totally kind of relatable. It's kind of a coming of age thing, if you like. Just put into two hours. So I think that's what I really enjoy about it. Excellent. Um, Owen, what have you seen like uh, this week? I uh, watched a documentary on Netflix that's... Um, Called Turtle Power, <laughs> the definitive history of the teenage mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, yeah, uh, I think I could, should kind of point out before I carry on. I'm not in any way a Turtles fanatic, by the way. I'm not a brony for the for the teenage mutant Ninja Turtles. I don't buy the comics. You are anymore. the only one that's actually seen the new film out of all of us, though, aren't you? That's true. Yeah, I which rest is probably my why. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But, um, yeah, I mean, I did watch that. It wasn't the worst film I've seen this year. Uh, I mean, that particular mantle's still kind of firmly in the cold, dead clutches of I Frankenstein. But the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film wasn't that bad, really. It, it was kind of entertaining at times. So, yeah, but the documentary, um, was also sort of interesting and also a little bit, um, Disappointing. I mean, basically what happens is it follows, um, Peter Laird, interviews Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman, who were the two men responsible for, uh, well, just for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, and I already sort of knew a little bit about the, uh, the origins of how it became such a, a massive phenomenon in the 80s and 90s anyway. And I think I said during the podcast when I reviewed it that, um, you know, a couple of episodes back that the nostalgia for the series is is really hard to shake off, uh, and that is probably the main reason why I gave the documentary a go is just nostalgia, really, and to kind of see a bit more information about how it all began. So in that respect, it kind of it does deliver. You get to see Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman talk about how they met, uh, which is actually really interesting. Um, apparently, Kevin was a 19-year-old cartoonist who just happened upon, he saw a magazine on the floor, an indie magazine on the floor of a bus, and as you do, picked it up and read it, and um, there were comics in it, and noticed uh, Peter Laird's name on it, and just decided, as an aspiring cartoonist, he would he would just make contact with this guy. And sort of this, like, speculative application, in a way, um, to Peter, to kind of, to write with him and draw with him, it, it, it sort of blossomed into this, this partnership. And, uh, yeah, so eventually they kind of met, just sitting around watching TV, Peter drew a turtle in a bandana and said that it was a ninja, and that was it. Then so became this, this so began this, this massive multi-million dollar franchise, 
Um, you know, so it started with the comic. They talk about how they conceived the comic story, the characters, uh, how they printed it and distributed it themselves. And then it became really popular and quite sort of underground. And then by the eighth issue, um, they were making something like $4,000 profit per issue. Which, you know, for what started out as a black and white indie little comic that they just messing about and drew themselves and cashed, uh, created using money they took from one of their uncles. It's pretty astonishing story. Uh, you know, because it spirals into this franchise with, you know, the Playmates toy line that they talk about, how their deal went through with them and who that made the cartoon, and then there were three movies, and then the comics continued to be successful, and there was a live musical show, and a tour, and so on and so forth. So it goes through all of this. It kind of talks about a, a little bit about the boom around 1989 for Christmas, when it was the most, it became one of the most sought-after toys that year. Um, but it kind of curtails some of the more serious issues, perhaps, that, that could have came out of that. So, uh, it's mentioned in passing by one of the guys who did the live tour of the show about going to some really, like, poverty-stricken area of uh, Mexico, and there's thousands of kids, just kids who've committed them, who've got no access to any of, you know, any of the toys, any of the... the um, other sort of t-shirts and lunch boxes and the action figures and anything else to do with it. They, they can't really afford it, but there they are playing with their band, trying to sell their, their gear and throwing free shirts and throwing pizza out to them and stuff like that. Um, so it kind of doesn't really touch on any of that. It is mainly, it does feel a bit like an advert for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but without ever actually acknowledging there's a new movie out or that there's you know, a cartoon series created in whenever it was, 2012, and that there was a, an animated film in 2007. It doesn't mention any of that. It kind of stops as soon as they cash their last check. As soon as um, uh, Kevin transfers ownership, I think, to Peter, and as soon as Peter's cashed his last check, that's pretty much the end point of the story. So it's not a it's not a definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, as it tries to claim. It's more just like definitive history of Peter and Kevin's involvement with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, okay, one of the things that you want from this is for it to be entertaining. So it has interviews with um, Jim Henson's son, who Jim Henson uh, and his son actually worked on it. They did all the puppetry for the, the, the live-action films. And the detail that went into it is fantastic. And they have interviews with um, the people who did the voice acting. They have... Uh, Steve Barron, who was the director of the film, and Fred Wolf, who was the lead animator and uh, executive producer, I think, on the, the cartoon series that turned them into um, into what they became. Um, but it never really gets that informative, or... I don't know. It was a bit wishy-washy, and it was really, like, sappy at times. There was some corny sentimental music, which was... Yeah, I don't know. And there was no real conclusion to to the end of this story. It just fizzled out into, and then this happened, and then we decided we'd stop, and then so does the documentary. So it's a bit weird. Um, but I kind of think it's, it is worth a watch for anyone who uh, well, might be interested in it, I suppose, to start with. Um, it won't be massively informative to anyone who doesn't already know about the origins of one of the most successful toy lines and cartoons of, of the 80s and 90s. Um, but, you know, might give you a bit of a nostalgia buzz, 
I, th I enjoyed seeing some of these old clips and brought back memories and seeing these old toys and forgetting quite how many action figures they made and stuff like that and seeing the little van and, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah, if you'll get a bit of a nostalgia buzz out of it if you've got any um, affiliation to, to these, these toys from when you were growing up as well. Okay. Uh, the film I saw was Secret Life of Walter Mitty from last year. Um, I think it, it's definitely on Netflix US. It might, it might well be on uh, UK Netflix. If not, it'll probably be on there quite soon. I think it's also on Sky Player or Sky On Demand or something like that as well. Um, so yeah, Ben Stiller, uh, ben Stiller uh, starred and directed in this film, which tells the story of somebody who works for Life magazine. Um, constantly kind of drifts off into his own little world um, kind of dis I suppose disappointed with his life and wants more from it which is why he keeps drifting off into his little world he's got a, got a crush on the co-worker hates his new boss and just keeps kind of disappearing into fancy worlds um, best thing I can say about this film really is it's just nice <laughs> I mean it's not a great film, it's not a bad film um it's just, it's just nice. It's quite feel good. It's uplifting, um, but quite instantly forgettable as well. Uh, that sounds a bit fair enough, really. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's not a film that you're going to kind of be talking about for, for, for days or hours, even after the film. Um, but it's enjoyable. It'll probably cheer you up a bit, um, or put a smile on your face. It's got some laughs in there. It's got some nice moments in there. Uh, soundtrack is really good, and the kind of because a lot of the film's based in in Iceland, so this film looks fantastic. But yeah, it's kind of not going to kind of um, make you, you know, you're not going to want to go back and rewatch it in a hurry. I don't think. But you're not going to. If someone said to you, "What did you think of that?" You're not going to go. That's terrible. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> That's probably the best yeah. praise I can give it. Really. <laughs> yeah, there were bits in it that are, um, I remember watching it in the cinema actually and thinking that there the, were the moments where the product placement takes you out of the film because yeah, it there seems to be an awful lot of it. Let's just say there are a few bits of product placement you just think. I know some films do have product placement in, it's just a, a byproduct of, of modern cinema, but it just kind mm -hmm. of grated a little bit on me in this one. But it doesn't any film I see it in. Whether it's James Bond facing the label of a beer bottle around towards you, or whether it's <laughs> whether it's you know any other film just blatantly laying the pl product placement on thick, it does does irritate me in any film really. Yeah, except Wayne's World. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> slightly different, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I agree. I I can't remember whether I placed it in my top films of last year at all when we were voting on them, but. I, re I remember really enjoying it. It was just a really, like I said, a nice, entertaining movie. Um, kind of one of those family films that you'd, you'd probably watch around Christmas when the whole family was there together. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit better than, um, I don't know, what else you... The, the kind of shit, generic comedies that you see, but there's something a bit different about it, a bit unique and perhaps a bit creative, but uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of there for anyone to enjoy, really. Yeah, one of those films it's hard to dislike, I think. So you can kind of tell that a bit more thoughts gone into it than your general film of that ilk. 
Definitely. Um, but I did think it went on a bit too long as well. I mean, it's just shy of two hours long. It probably could have lost 20 minutes from it. Uh, it did start to drag a little bit in the middle, but kind of picked up again towards the end, I think. Hmm. Hmm. So, yeah, that's all there for what we've been watching. After this break, we'll have new release reviews of The Babadook and Mr. Turner. On to our new releases now. Uh, to start off with, we have got The Babadook, a Australian-made horror film. Um, should have done this last week for Halloween, but I saw it in between our our clocked-up recording last week, so I didn't <laughs> manage to get it into the, the Halloween record. Um, so yes, it is about a woman and her child who become haunted uh, by the titular Babadook after reading a children, what appears to be a children's book about the monster. Here's a clip. So then that was a clip of the Babadook. Uh, the film starts then with this, the, with, um, a mother who, uh, has lost her husband a few years previously and is now raising her son Samuel alone. Um, her son, before even a mention of the Babadook comes into the film, he already believes in monsters, thinks there's monsters under his bed, uh, and kind of makes homemade weapons to fight against them. One involves kind of a, uh, slingshotting a cricket ball with it being an Australian film a cricket ball is probably going to be in any kind of homemade child's weapon um, <laughs> but yes so uh, then they find this she always reads him a bedtime story like any mum does um, he finds this book on the shelf and no one knows where it came from it's called The Babadook and it starts off just like a little children's book with a few funny pictures and rhyming words uh, and it gets creepier and creepier to the extent where she wants to stop reading it, but he doesn't, so for some reason she carries on reading it, and eventually becomes uh, all a house, and becomes possessed by uh, the Babadook. Uh, it's been getting quite good reviews, but I didn't go too much on it. I never felt kind of creeped out at any point, never felt scared at any point, never made me feel uneasy at any point. Um... It just didn't work as kind of a, a horror film for me. But saying that, the the, the central character, the, the mother, Essie Davis, or played by Essie Davis, um, was fantastic. She really did kind of perform excellently as an unhinged mother who's being, not only has, has got a son who's got some kind of obvious, obvious problems, um, but has lost her husband as well. She She plays this unhinged woman who's possessed in some way fantastically. Uh, other than that, there aren't many other cast members, especially prominent ones. The son is just irritating. Um, one of the most irritating children I've seen in a film lately. He just really did my head in. Um, and, and then he involves himself towards the end, towards the resolution of the film, in what can only be described as a horror version of Home Alone, briefly. Um, and, yeah. This didn't work as a horror film for me on any level. Um, but I must be wrong because there are many people kind of <laughs> raving about it, so 
I don't know, but I was just I was just sat through the cinema, and not once did I even jump or feel scared or uneasy um, or unnerved or anything. Um, I just sort of sat through it and just thought, oh, probably could have gone and seen something a bit better and a bit scarier than this. It's a bit weird though, isn't it? Because it's not shown in a lot of places at the minute. It's still relatively... Tre- I mean, it's treated kind of as if it was some weird world cinema movie. It's not showing in my local uh, cinema world. It's not showing at the Odeon that I go to even. It's just a bit... I don't know. I don't think it's been treated as if it's a mainstream horror. So perhaps the, the kind of people who would normally see it have not been a- able to get access to it. And only those who really kind of love that genre have been to see it. And therefore they're the kind of audience who might like it anyway. I don't know. Maybe that might account for why it's had such good reviews. But um... Perhaps. Um, I mean, I thought it was, it was quite... I didn't realise it had such a limited release. I thought it was quite widely released but obviously um that's not the case but yeah no i haven't i haven't seen it in any of the any of the cinemas that even i go to hmm. you know and in that there london so in that uh, london yeah exactly. and it, it's had like glowing reviews i haven't read a single bad review you have now um i have now, yeah, I have now. <laughs> well i've heard i've heard a bad yeah, review so. but um yeah i was really surprised because it's not to be honest it's not really the sort of thing i would go and watch anyway but i was surprised not to see it playing so uh, playing as widely Hmm. Especially for Halloween as well. I would have thought it'd well, be exactly, everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, that that was that. And Owen, you've seen a film called uh, Mr. Turner. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Okay. Firstly, firstly, I'm sure this. I seem to be saying this all the time. I'm sure this will come as no surprise to anybody. Um, I'm hardly an art critic. Okay. I might know a little bit about the films that I like. A little bit about the books that I like, but when it comes to sort of painters and other kinds of artists, I'm pretty, um, well, I mean, let's just say I stopped doing art before GCSE level at school. That's pretty much it. So, I know the name Turner, uh, I know what the Turner Prize is and who it was named after, uh, and I could probably, after a minute or so of thinking about it, have told you that actually he painted landscapes. That's about the extent of my knowledge of the titular Mr. Turner. Um, going into Mike Lee's Palmdor-nominated period drama. Um, not that it mattered for me so much as it happens, because I mean I can think of very few moments, uh, if any at all, in the film you'd consider uh, exposition. You know, yet you know, watching Timothy Spall grunt and sneer his way through a quarter of a century of the famous artist um, Turner's life told over 150 minutes, you really get a sense of who the man was anyway. Um, you know, what he was like, uh, what he thought of those around him, his flaws and accomplishments, all that that he possessed. There's not really a, a lot that's left unspoken during the final 25 years uh, of his life. However, whilst that side of things might not have been a problem, I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure, if I'd have known a little bit more about his works, uh, which are presented at times during the film without kind of clothing the personality of the man behind them, but if I'd have known uh, his work more, um, well, well, you can scratch that more, if I'd have known his works at all, put it that way, I'm sure it would have given the film an extra dimension. Because um, I watched this uh, right in the centre of Ox 
Oxford earlier, so you know, cultured people all around me. What what spiffing, all that good stuff. But the I'm sure that the, there were a few um, people who were around me who knew a bit more about him because there were audible gasps at what I presume uh, were paintings of, of um, Turner's that were being brought to life um, with actual kind of uh, real images rather than just just paintings on a canvas. So. You know, I could tell you, um, couldn't tell you which paintings specifically, but even to a Philistine like me, it looked breathtaking and so painstakingly detailed and captured. Um, a guy called Dick Pope was the cinematographer for the film and he actually won the, um, Vulcan Prize for Technical Artist at Cannes Film Festival. Uh, and deservedly so, because it's an absolutely gorgeous film. It's absolutely gorgeous. And Mike Lee as well should almost definitely um, get credit for that too, because between them, they've made this early 19th century Dickensian Britain and the sort of the seas around the coast and all that just look beautiful. Um, well, yeah, you know, between the pair of them and, of course, Turner. Um, they've done that. But, you know, in a lot of ways, it reminded me of last year's film, The Great Beauty. Because he's just this larger-than-life man who can observe the world around him and commentate it on, on the way that he's skilled at, which is obviously through painting, um, but also whilst participating uh, in these these things that he's seeing. So, you know, he's just a ship that's being thrashed by the waves of one of his own ski uh, seascapes. You know, he's, he's not a saint. He's not particularly debauched either. You know, he's just a man with his own... Issues, some intimacy issues, um, but that's all he is. He's a man with a notepad and a pencil. And that's kind of what Mike Lee's film captures brilliantly. Um, and it is an astonishing performance from Timothy Spall, by the way, um, who uh, also won uh, an award at the Cannes Film Festival, which was Best Actor for this role. Also, deservedly so, because the depth and the versatility he shows in just one one movie you know, be it the kind of tightening of clenched fists held behind his back, or um, looking to lovingly towards his father, or a tender encounter with a B and B owner, or a breakdown he has. Doesn't matter what it is. It, 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 he's brilliant, and there's lots of little details of what makes the full picture, and lots of seemingly small movements or gestures from Spall together that tell a full story uh, of the man. So yeah, I mean, as you can probably tell, I really enjoyed it. It was good. I got back from seeing it about three hours ago now, um, as we're recording this. It was about three three hours ago, so it's hard for me to really talk about any of the negatives that I might have floating around my head, because I'm still kind of digesting it, really. Um, but I suppose if I was nitpicking on my initial instincts, I... What was that? That was amazing. Someone throwing cans around in the <laughs> Is that Steve's tinny falling out of his hands as he as he drifts asleep? No, just drops. No. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So if I was nitpicking, um, I didn't really get a sense that twenty five years was passing. I only found out that it was a quarter of a century of his life when I got back home and I looked on IMDb and that's what it said of the description. I was like, oh right, okay, twenty five years. Didn't realise that. Um, but you can tell time has passed, of course. Um, but how much at each point in the plot, I was never really certain. But if it actually made a difference, then I would have mentioned it already. 
They didn't. It was inconsequential, so it doesn't really matter. But the runtime of two and a half hours for the film was also quite excessive. Um, but not wasted either. So, you know, it's kind of... I am nitpicking a little bit. It's a long film. It's good film, but it's long. But it's good. But it's also long. Um, and ultimately, it's a moving, beautiful story. Uh, looks as good as you'd hope it would. Uh, I'm sure fans of Turner's will be... Uh, they'll probably enjoy it as much as, uh, or maybe more so, than a layman like me who just wanted to see a good film. Which is, well it is, it's a good film. Okay, uh, so yeah, that rounds up our new release reviews. We're nearly done for the podcast now. Obviously just our recommendations to come. I'm going to go with a new one that's come on to uh, Netflix UK, and that is Steven Seagal's Under Siege. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't see any more than that. Uh, Carol, uh, are you not allowed to recommend the room? What are you? No, I'm not recommending the room. Don't worry. Um, I've just been looking actually because I was told that it was a short film that I saw last year at London Film Festival. It's online, but I can't find the um, I can't find the actual website for it. So if I find that, I'm going to tweet it. But my recommendation. Uh, is going to be um, on Sunday morning, I presume, at quarter past midnight on BBC Two's Walkabout, which uh, I watched when I was at school because we we read the book when I was at school, and it's actually um, I, I just found it really really affecting. I watched it uh, probably a few years ago as well, and it still really holds up. It's just basically a story about um, two uh, siblings who get lost in the Australian outback and they find this kind of Aboriginal uh, kid who helps them to survive and it's it's really good, it's got uh, Jenny Agatha in it, obviously being really really young because it was in 1970 she, she's the girl, but um, yeah it was great, uh, so I totally definitely recommend watching it Okay, and Owen um, I'm going to pick um, From Dusk Till Dawn which is on Film 4 on Saturday at 11.25pm. Uh, I watched the Mexico Trilogy, his Mexico Trilogy recently, which I think I talked about on the podcast as well, uh, earlier in the year. Yeah. Brilliant film. From Dust Till Dawn, though, trumps any of those. And I really love El Mariachi, but From Dust Till Dawn, Robert Rodriguez's best film, I think. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that brings an end, then, to uh, this week's Failed Critics podcast. Relatively short one, by our standards. Um, but hopefully you'll be back to join us again next week. And thanks to everybody who listened to the podcast or contributed to this or the website uh, in any way. You can find the website at www.failedcritics.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
and it's soon to spawn an actual film about the making of the film with Seth Rogen <laughs> and James Franco. What more do you want? Seriously. Well, I, I was so happy I was playing football manager while watching this that, <laughs> that I didn't actually feel like I'd wasted that time. I felt like I'd done something productive while doing watching this. How could this you possibly mess. keep up with the plot if you're playing football manager there, at the same time? There is no plot. There, there are, is a plot. There are subplots that don't go anywhere. There are there are things that don't get resolved. There's just people that pop in and out, and, and <laughs> you don't make any sense. You've never heard of them before. It, it's just it's garbage. It's uh, it's not so bad. It's good. It's so bad. It should be like everyone should get their who's seen it needs to get their mind erased with one of them Men in Black things. Yeah, I'm actually pretty impressed that you even watched it, Steve. To be <laughs> I didn't think you were going to do it. I knew Owen would because he's a man of his word. I'm gotten for. Gotten for punishment, apparently. But <laughs> of all the bad films that we've picked for each other, you know, Cutthroat Island was one of the most boring, ridiculous films we've had. Movie Forty Three sucked balls. But this, <laughs> this is possibly the worst that we've had so far. I think the, you mean the best. <laughs> no, I've not been told that the worst, worst, not the worst, <laughs> best. It is appalling. Absolutely. I can't believe you didn't even enjoy like the four gratuitously long sex scenes. <sighs> one of which is basically just offcuts of, of another one that's just come immediately <laughs> before it. Yeah. What was that about? Why did <laughs> just not shitty R and B pop music that's in every single scene? Oh my god! <laughs> I haven't gotten over it yet. It's just it's just brilliant. There's a there's a really good. Um, uh, YouTube series uh, by I think it's by a channel called Cinema Sins and it basically counts up everything that's wrong with the film and this <laughs> this one got about I don't know three billion points or something uh, so that's that's a recommendation on its own I think but anyway it's great and you're all wrong it's, oh, it's, it's not great really it's, it's great it's not uh, and it's so misogynistic as well what the hell is this woman is evil and then she lies and it's all yeah but but Johnny's great. Johnny's a really strange guy. <laughs> Everyone loves Johnny. I particularly Johnny. like the bit in the in the florist shop where he just sort of like he has his sunglasses on, and he takes his sunglasses off, and she goes, "Oh, it's you, Johnny. You're my favourite customer." Exactly. Like, actually, you're like the most distinctive person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you're my favourite customer. He's <laughs> like a weird mix of John Claude Van Damme and Chris, uh, Christopher Walken. The way he speaks is just the most bizarre pronunciation of words I've seen in a film ever. <laughs> strange, so you enjoyed strange it, man. right? Right, good. Oh, I'm glad no. I'm glad that everyone enjoyed it. Basically, <laughs> to anyone who's listening, never watch the room. Never Do watch the room. Never ever subject <laughs> yourself to the utter tripe that it is. Everyone exactly. needs to watch the room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah do some quizzing. I've got to do some quizzing. Alright, so I'm going to start off. I am, I am going to do this in chronological order. You're doing it properly. I'm doing it in old style. And I'm going to start off in 2004 with Shaun of the Dead. Steve. Is it, yep. is it Rafe Spall? It is Rafe Spall! What? How did you even get that off? <laughs> I just had the, I was thinking, right, 2000, if you're going in, doing it properly like I do, 2004 is going to be relatively young. Shaun the Dead, he's in it a little bit, and he's he pretty is. young in that. He is. So, 
Yeah, um, this is un- un- this is shen- shenanigans. There's some consp- conspiracy going on. Prove it. There must be a conspiracy. If you did, st- I do not believe Steve got Rafe's ball from just Shaun <laughs> of the Dead. It's a reasonable choice. If you're not going to go in, in for the obvious ones of Simon Pegg and, and Nick Frost, well, I, I, I suppose you could have. I suppose you could have gone Simon Pegg or Nick Frost with that one because it's probably the first film they're actually in. Yeah, probably. So, yeah, hmm. I think you're probably right. Actually, but, but yeah, I was thinking 2004, so they must be young. Uh, but if Owen can prove any shenanigans, then I'm more than happy relinquish the point. But he won't because I just got it because I was clever. He <laughs> <laughs> was also in uh, Green Street. I don't remember him in Green Street, although I've only, to be fair, I've only seen it once. He was, and I don't he, even think I've seen it all the way through there. I don't think I want to rewatch Green Street just to see no, if he's in it. I'll just take, no, I'll just take the neither. word for it. <laughs> I'll just take IMDb's word for it. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't remember him in Green Street. I can remember Elijah Wood, and I can remember some guy doing a really bad Cockney accent. And Charlie, Charlie, what's his face is in it? Uh, Charlie Hunnam from uh, Pacific Rim. The main, but, the main hooligan. Yeah, but before that, I think he was only probably best known for Queer as Folk, so that was quite a quite, quite a, a leap. Yeah. <laughs> well, both involve grappling with men in some way or another. That's very true. That's very yep. true. So, so well done, Steve. You are one up in the quiz. Owen is Owen is fuming. I can tell. Silently, yeah. On to the news, and there's only one real bit of news we could find this week, and that was the uh, the British Independent Film Awards have uh, nominations have been revealed, uh, as, as Carol called them, the Biffers. Uh, they have been have been revealed. With, I think they're four um, British films that are made for less than twenty million pounds. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. That's right. Um, 71 has, has cleared up with nine nominations overall. Well, not cleared up yet, because I've announced, but it's got nine nominations overall. Hmm. Um, Which I'm not that surprised about, because it's a really good film. Yeah, it was an excellent film, and as I said, both in my written review and my review on the podcast, worthy of any awards that it gets nominated for, really. Yeah, and the film, as well as your reviews. Yeah, um, <laughs> So, for, for Best British Independent Film, you've got uh, 71, Cavalry, Mr. Turner, Pride, and The Imitation Game, all up for that one. Um, Imitation Game isn't out yet, that's the Alan Turing biopic, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that one's not out yet. Cavalry is one I've not heard of myself, so is, has that been released, or is that... Yeah, it's, I think it might be on Netflix now, actually. I, re- I remember someone saying it's uh, Brendan Gleeson as a member of the church. I haven't seen it myself, but I do know a few people that saw it, and they said it was very good. Okay. Well, James watched it at Glasgow Film Festival. Um, oh, well, I said watched it. He fell asleep whilst he was watching it, which I swear is an, um, a, com- a, you know, a comment on the actual quality of the film. He was just very we've, tired. We've all done it. We've all done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then Pride, which you saw, Carol, I think. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then obviously 71 and Mr. Turner, which Owen is reviewing later on. Best Director um, had John Michael McDonough for Cavalry, Lenny Abrahamson for Frank, uh, Matthew Waters for Pride, Mike Lee for Mr. Turner, and Jan Demange for 71. You know, of the two, I'm really glad 71 got nominated. I don't think it'll win either of those two awards, though. I think, I think Pride much... will probably clean up. You think Pride? Yeah. 
See, I think Imitation Game or Mr. Turner. Mr. Turner sounds like the kind of film that would clear up at these kind of awards without me sounding too judgy about anyone. No, I know what you mean. It's, yeah. There's a lot of kind of... uh, Sorry. I was just going to say, there's a lot of um, weight behind it at the moment. A lot of uh, momentum it's building. I think maybe people, maybe the, the biffers... As I, I'm now calling also the, the judges <laughs> and jury <laughs> um, will probably think it's been recognised elsewhere because obviously it picked up uh, prizes in Cannes and it's probably going to be on the Oscar radar as well. And Pride Possibly. won't necessarily be uh, be there, so maybe this is their, their chance to, to reward it. I don't know. Uh, mm. Best actress, we've got Alicia Vikander for Testament of Youth, uh, Chang Pei Pei for... Uh, Lil Tink. Lil Tink. Uh, yeah. Google, they're not making this easy for me, are they? <laughs> Pronunciation wise. Uh, Gugu Mbappa, Raw for Bell, Kira Knightley, I can do that one for the imitation game. Uh, and Samina Javeen Ahmed for Catch Me Daddy. Can't say I've heard of many of those films, if I'm honest. I missed Bell. I was tempted to go and see it, but I just missed it. Um... I couldn't find it playing. Uh, I saw loads of loads of trailers for it, and I thought I quite fancy seeing that, but I couldn't. It wasn't playing anywhere near me, which was. Quite I've heard annoying. it's actually quite a good political drama. It's billed yeah. as it looked like from the adverts and from the poster, even that it was a kind of period romance type story. But apparently, it's a, and actually quite a, a decent British um, political drama. Well, yeah, you'd be missing you'd be missing the point massively if you just made it a romantic drama. Oh yeah, you? absolutely, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, um, best actor, there's a load of names I can pronounce in that one. Uh, Asa Butterfield in X plus Y, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Imitation Game, Brendan Gleeson in Cavalry, Jack O'Connell in 71, and Timothy Spall in Mr. Turner. That seems like quite a, a, a heavyweight category. Mm. All of them at the minute are um, critics' darlings, aren't they? I mean, Asa Butterfield's got a lot of uh, press as well. And, of course, Timothy Spall who I'll talk about later, is, is fantastic. One of the best performances I've seen this year. But Jack O'Connell as well. Uh, Benedict Cumberpatch, they're all... I mean, Brendan Gleeson as well, but they are, like you said, the heavyweights, I think. This is the toughest category, I would think. Uh, um, and best documentary, um, which I'd actually seen um, more of than anyone else last year, I think, out of me, mm. you and me, you and James, um, which was quite surprising. Yeah. Uh, 20,000 Days on Earth, Next goal wins, night will fall, the possibilities are endless, and Virunga. Obviously, I'm really happy to see next goal wins um, in there. Especially if we kind of got involved as a start, from, well, not from the start, but from when all the publicity for it started coming out. And we've been kind of going along with it from there. Um, so, yeah, personally, I'm really happy to see that one nominated. But I don't think it'll win, because I, like, I don't think you kind of learn enough, it's not kind of as, as meaty as, as some documentaries will be, and I expect one of the others will probably win, but it's nice to see it in there. I'm going to stick my neck out and say, uh, I haven't seen it, but I think the possibilities are endless, it's got a really strong chance there, everyone I know who's seen it raves about it. It's um, a documentary about Edwin Collins, I don't know whether either of you guys know anything about Edwin Collins, he used to be a pop star and then he had a massive stroke, um, he still performs, and when he performs he's completely... Um, you know, he sounds completely as he always did, but it, and he is getting better. But he's had lots of kind of speech problems and stuff. But um, I sat next to a guy at the Salvation actually when I was at the film festival, 
and we got chatting and he had been to see it the night the week before and he was just raving about it so <laughs> I, I really do need to, to catch it if it gets a theatrical release Yeah, looks like you're leading the with the most views of the documentaries again this year, Steve. <laughs> with one. <laughs> Not often that that works. I don't quite often. I don't know how this keeps happening. Maybe I'm just more educated than everyone else. That's definitely it. <laughs> yeah. Um... Fixed. <laughs> it's it's not. So yeah, I was okay. going to go Timothy Spool, but I was having a bit of a problem with. So I went with his son instead, because <laughs> <laughs> he's got a long old uh, credit history. Timothy Spool. Who was he in uh, Shaun of the Dead? Then I don't really he, remember him. He, he he's the lad that works in the shop. With, um, with Sean, who, who, yeah. who gets Nick Frost the drugs. Or his yeah, you can't recognise him because he's actually quite chubby. Yeah. Mm. He and he's really, he's really fit now. He doesn't really look anything like Rave Spool, does he? Anyway? No, he doesn't at all. Yeah. I, I had to look twice when someone told me it was him. But yeah, he's, he's in about three scenes, isn't he? Yeah, and then he's at the bit, yeah, because he's, he's at the end, they've basically made him into like a trolley monkey at yeah. Asda or something. Mm-hmm. And one of the scenes he's in, he's on the phone. And like yeah. you can't see him. What we've been watching now, then, when we take a look at the films we've seen over the last seven days, it might not necessarily be uh, new releases. Carol, you received something this week from the EM Foundation. You keep sending us lots of things at the moment. Yes, I did receive um, the a copy of the Blu-ray, a UK Blu-ray premiere of Spirited Away, which is just an amazing film anyway, so I was very, very happy to have a copy of it on Blu-ray. Um, basically, it's coming out on November 24th, but there's also a big, massive set of Miyazaki's films uh, on Blu-ray coming out in December, which has immediately gone onto my, my Christmas list. It's a horrendous <laughs> amount of money, obviously, but... Um, yeah, it it looks it looks absolutely amazing, and if the transfers are anything near as good as as the ones for Spirit Away, is it will be well worth the money because it looks so beautiful. I actually have the DVD um, copy as well, and I did a bit of a side by side comparison, um, and just it just it just all looks gorgeous. The, the colours are amazing. The colours are so rich, and you know the, it's just pin sharp. It's absolutely incredible. Um, if you haven't seen the film. Uh, which I'm, I don't know whether most people will, will have done because it essentially is a kids' film, but it's one of the kind of highly, most highly regarded um, Ghibli films. Um, it focuses on a young girl called Chihiro who uh, moves to a new uh, house with her parents, uh, but they don't even get to the house before some magic uh, besets her parents and they be- they get turned into pigs. And the rest of the film is her basically trying to save her parents who've been turned into pigs. And it's just. It's ridiculous. It's it's just so inventive. When you look at some of the absolute crap that some people come out with <laughs> for kids, and then you look at this, and there's you know ba- massive babies being turned into hamsters and things like you know just you know just as a, a as a rite of passage, you know it's just kind of happened. Just deal with it. Um, it's just it's ridiculous, but it's so it's so beautiful. It's so beautifully drawn. Um, yeah, the animation's amazing. The, the story is really nice. It's quite it's quite simple, really, but um, you know, it's just full of kind of twists and turns, and there are just these scary, crazy characters that turn up. Um, 
but it's fantastic and and the blu-ray just does look amazing um there's a few extras on there i haven't got any extras on my dvd i don't know whether any whether these are all blu-ray premieres or not there's a um there's a lot of stuff with john laster because john laster is basically like the proxy for studio ghibli in the western world and um so there's an introduction by him and then there's like a feature where you meet miyazaki um there's all the japanese trailers which are like 20 minutes long all put together which is a bit weird but um there's like a making of which is quite long i didn't manage to get through all of it because i was guiding myself for the room obviously <laughs> um but uh, yeah it's just it's fantastic and if you're a ghibli fan like me you're going to absolutely love it i think it's well worth the upgrade personally Oh. Will be for us. Our DVD is from Hong Kong, so it doesn't play over here on our DVD player. But um, well, that was a bit silly. I know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's it's not one of my personal favourite Ghibli films. Which really? Is kind of sacrilegious. Yeah, I I was never really into the fantasy ones. I prefer sort of the more reality based. Well, Great the fireflies. You like? Yeah, and Whisper of the really Heart, upset. and yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I do. I love it. It's one of my favourite things. Sometimes I just go, no, I don't do anything else. <laughs> but the, um, <laughs> the fantasy ones have never really done it for me. But the one thing that's, that's true about all of them is the animation in, in, in every single one is sort of breathtaking and p- particularly spirited away. I think there's some absolutely fantastic designs, um, in that film. The dragon stuff with all the paper and things. I can't imagine that. That would look anything less than stunning on yeah, uh, on Blu-ray. It's amazing. But uh, yeah, I think we've had it. It's come up on the podcast a few times actually, because we had the Studio Ghibli um, uh, Corridor of Praise um, uh, sometime last year, I think, or possibly the year before. And I think Jerry as well picked it for for his decade in film series, and you know, it's critically. Uh, accepted as being one of their best. It, it was was it the first to win the best animated feature as well for the uh, Academy Awards? So yeah, first of, anime ever but, to win the Oscar for best animated feature. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of um, uh, you know s- critical praise and swagger that comes with with, with Spirit Away. But yeah, personally, it's not not one of my favourites. But I can yeah imagine, totally imagine it looks brilliant on Blu-ray. I think what raises it above, I, I love uh, My Neighbor Totoro and I love uh, Princess Mononoke's one, probably my favourite one actually. Um, but I think the, the whole thing in Spirit of the Way, the thing that I love about it so much is it, it's a fairly long film, it's over two hours, uh, which is quite long for a kid's film. But I've never, I, I used to watch it with my brother because he was very young when it came out and he was always just completely, he would sit completely still through it all. Um, and it's just like the, the idea that you have this young girl and she's quite naive when when it starts but by the end she's just completely you know there, there's this whole journey that she's been on i know it sound it makes it sound a bit like an episode of the x factor but um it's just it's totally believable and it's totally kind of relatable it's kind of a coming of age thing if you like just put into two hours so i think that's what i really enjoy about it excellent um owen what have you seen like uh, this week I uh, watched a documentary on Netflix that's um, called Turtle Power, <laughs> the definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, yeah, uh, I think I could, should kind of point out before I carry on, 
I'm not in any way a Turtles fanatic, by the way. I'm not a brony for the for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I don't buy the comics You are the anymore. only one that's actually seen the new film out of all of us, though, aren't you? That's true, yeah. I rest my case. Why... <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But, um, yeah. I mean, I did watch that. It wasn't the worst film I've seen this year. Uh, I mean, that particular mantle's still kind of firmly in the cold, dead clutches of like Frankenstein. But the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film wasn't that bad, really. It, it was kind of entertaining at times. So, yeah, but the documentary um, was also sort of interesting and also a little bit um, disappointing. I mean, basically what happens is it follows um, Peter Laird, interviews Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman, who were the two men responsible for, uh, well, just for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, and I already sort of knew a little bit about the uh, the origins of how it became such a, a massive phenomenon in the 80s and 90s anyway. And I think I said during the podcast when I reviewed it that, um, you know, a couple of episodes back, that the nostalgia for the series is, is really hard to shake off. Uh, and that is probably the main reason why I gave the documentary a go, is just nostalgia, really. And just kind of see a bit more information about how it all began. So in that respect, it kind of, it does deliver. You get to see Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman talk about how they met, uh, which is actually really interesting. Um, apparently Kevin was a 19 year old cartoonist who just happened upon, he saw a magazine on the floor, an indie magazine on the floor of a bus, and as you do, picked it up and read it, and um, there were comics in it, and noticed uh, Peter Laird's name on it, and just decided, as an aspiring cartoonist, he would he would just make contact with this guy, and sort of this like speculative application in a way, um, to Peter, to kind of, to write with him and draw with him, it, it, it sort of blossomed into this, this partnership. And, uh, yeah, so eventually I kind of met, just sitting around watching TV, Peter drew a turtle in a bandana and said that it was a ninja. And that was it. Then so became this, this so began this, this massive multi-million dollar franchise. Um, you know, so it started with the comic, and they talk about how they conceived the comic story, the characters, uh, how they printed it and distributed it themselves. And then it became really popular and quite sort of underground, and then by the eighth issue, um, they were making something like $4,000 profit per issue, which, you know, for what started out as a black and white indie little comic that they were just messing about and drew themselves and cashed, uh, created using money they took from one of their uncles. It's pretty astonishing story, uh, you know, because it spirals into this franchise with, you know, the Playmates toy line that they talk about, how their deal went through with them and who that made the cartoon, and then there were three movies, and then the comics continued to be successful, and there was a live musical show, and a tour, and so on and so forth. So it goes through all of this. It kind of talks about a, a little bit about the boom around 1989 for Christmas, when it was the most, it became one of the most sought-after toys that year. Um, but it kind of curtails some of the more serious issues, perhaps, that, that could have came out of that. So, uh, it's mentioned in passing by one of the guys who did the live tour of the show about going to some really, like, poverty-stricken area of uh, Mexico, and there's thousands of kids, just kids who've come out to them, who've got no access to any of, you know, 
any of the toys, any of the the um, other sort of T-shirts and lunch boxes and the action figures and anything else to do with it. They they can't really afford it, but there they are playing with their band, trying to sell their their gear and throwing free shirts and throwing pizza out to them and stuff like that. Um, so it kind of doesn't really touch on any of that. It is mainly it does feel a bit like an advert for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But without ever actually acknowledging there's a new movie out. Or that there's, you know, a cartoon series created in whenever it was, 2012, and that there was a, an animated film in 2007. It doesn't mention any of that. It kind of stops as soon as they cash their last check. As soon as um, uh, Kevin transfers ownership, I think, to Peter, and as soon as Peter's cashed his last check, that's pretty much the end point of the story. So it's not a it's not a definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as it tries to claim. It's more just like definitive history of Peter and Kevin's involvement with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, okay, one of the things that you want from this is for it to be entertaining. So it has interviews with um, Jim Henson's son, who Jim Henson uh, and his son actually worked on it. They did all the puppetry for the the, the live action films, and the detail that went into it is fantastic and they have interviews with um the people who did the voice acting they have uh steve barron who was the director of the film and fred wolf who was the lead animator and uh, executive producer i think on the the cartoon series that turned them into um into what they became um but it never really gets that informative or I don't know, it was a bit wishy-washy, and it was really, like, sappy at times. There was some corny sentimental music, which was, yeah, I don't know. And there was no real conclusion to to the end of this story. It just fizzled out into, and then this happened, and then we decided we'd stop, and then so does the documentary. So it's a bit weird. Um, but I kind of think it's, it is worth a watch for anyone who uh, well, might be interested in it, I suppose, to start with. Um, it won't be massively informative to anyone who doesn't already know about the origins of one of the most successful toy lines and cartoons of, of the 80s and 90s. Um, but you know, might give you a bit of a nostalgia buzz. I, I enjoyed seeing some of these old clips and brought back memories and seeing these old toys and forgetting quite how many action figures they made and stuff like that and seeing the little van and the, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah, if you get a bit of a nostalgia buzz out of it if you've got any um, affiliation to, to these, these toys from when you were growing up as well. Okay. Uh, film I saw was Secret Life of Walter Mitty from last year. Um, I think it, it's definitely on Netflix US. It might, it might well be on uh, UK Netflix. If not, it'll probably be on there quite soon. I think it's also on Sky Player or Sky On Demand or something like that as well. Um, so yeah, Ben Stiller, uh, ben Stiller uh, starred and directed in this film, which tells the story of somebody who works for Life magazine, um, but constantly kind of drifts off into his own little world, um, kind of dis- I suppose disappointed with his life and wants more from it, which is why he keeps drifting off into this little world. He's got a, got a crush on a co-worker, hates his new boss. And just keeps kind of disappearing into fancy worlds. Um, best thing I can say about this film really is it's just nice. <laughs> I mean, it's not a great film. It's not a bad film. Um, it's just, it's just nice. It's quite feel good. It's uplifting. Um, but quite instantly forgettable as well. 
that sounds about fair enough. Really. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's not a film that you're going to kind of be talking about for, for, for days or hours even after the film. Um, but it's enjoyable. It'll probably cheer you up a bit. Um, or put a smile on your face. It's got some laughs in there. It's got some nice moments in there. Uh, soundtrack is really good. And the kind of, because a lot of the film's based in, in Iceland. So this film looks fantastic. But yeah, it's kind of not going to kind of, um, make you, you know, you're not going to want to go back and rewatch it in a hurry, I don't think. But you're not going to, if someone said to you, what did you think of that? You're not going to go, that's terrible. Yeah, it's alright. <laughs> That's probably the best yeah. praise I can give it, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are bits in it that... Are, um, I remember watching it in the cinema, actually, and thinking that there the, are the moments where the product placement takes you out of the film. Because yeah, there seems to be an are, awful lot of it. Let's just say, there are a few bits of product placement you just think... I know some films do have product placement in. It's just a, a byproduct of, of modern cinema, but it just kind mm-hmm. of grated a little bit on me in this one but it doesn't any film I see it in whether it's James Bond facing the label of a beer bottle round towards you or whether it's <laughs> whether it's you know any other film just blatantly laying the pl- product placement on thick it does does irritate me in any film really yeah except Wayne's World well yeah <laughs> that's slightly different but yeah <laughs> yeah but uh, no I agree I, I can't remember whether I placed it in my top films of last year at all when we were voting on them, but I, re- I remember really enjoying it. It was just a really, like I said, a nice entertaining movie. Um, kind of one of those family films that you'd, you'd probably watch around Christmas when the whole family was there together. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit better than um, I don't know, what else you the, the kind of shit generic comedies that you see but there's something a bit different about it, a bit unique and perhaps a bit creative, but uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of there for anyone to enjoy, really. Yeah, One of those can, films it's hard to dislike, I think. So you can kind of tell that a bit more thoughts gone into it than your general film of that ilk. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I did think it went on a bit too long as well. I mean, it's just shy of two hours long. It probably could have lost 20 minutes from it. Uh, it did start to drag a little bit in the middle, but kind of picked up again towards the end, I think. Hmm. Hmm. So, yeah, that's all there for what we've been watching. After this break, we'll have new release reviews of The Babadook and Mr. Turner. On to our new releases now. Uh, to start off with, we have got The Babadook, a Australian-made horror film. Um, should have done this last week for Halloween, but I saw it in between our our popped up recording last week, so I didn't <laughs> manage to get it into the the Halloween record. Um, so yes, it is about a woman and her child who become haunted uh, by the titular Babadook after reading a children what appears to be a children's book about the monster. Here's a clip.
so then that was a clip of the Babadook. Uh, the film starts then with this, the, with, um, a mother who ha- has lost her husband a few years previously and is now raising her son Samuel alone. Um, her son, before even a mention of the Babadook comes into the film, he already believes in monsters, thinks there's monsters under his bed, uh, and kind of makes homemade weapons to fight against them. One involves kind of a, uh, slingshotting a cricket ball, with it being an Australian film, a cricket ball is probably going to be in any kind of homemade child's weapon. Um, but yes, so, uh, then they find this, she always reads him a bedtime story, like any mum does. Um, he finds this book on the shelf, and no one knows where it came from. It's called The Babadook, and it starts off just like a little children's book, with a few funny pictures and rhyming words, and it gets creepier and creepier to the extent where she wants to stop reading it, but he doesn't, so for some reason she carries on reading it, and eventually becomes, uh, all a house, and becomes possessed by uh, Babadook. Uh, it's been getting quite good reviews, but I didn't go too much on it. I never felt kind of creeped out at any point, never felt scared at any point, never made me feel uneasy at any point. Um... It just didn't work as kind of a, a horror film for me. But saying that, the the, the central character, the, the mother, Essie Davis, or played by Essie Davis, um, was fantastic. She really did kind of perform excellently as an unhinged mother who's being, not only has, has got a son who's got some kind of obvious, ob- obvious problems, um, but has lost her husband as well. She She plays this unhinged woman who's possessed in some way fantastically. Uh, but other than that, there aren't many other cast members, especially prominent ones. The son is just irritating. Um, one of the most irritating children I've seen in a film lately. He just really did my head in. Um, and, and then he involves himself towards the end, towards the resolution of the film, in what can only be described as a horror version of Home Alone, briefly. Um, and, yeah. just didn't work as a horror film for me on any level. Um but I must be wrong because there are many people kind of <laughs> raving about it, so I don't know. But I was just I was just sat through the cinema and not once did I even jump or feel scared or uneasy um, or unnerved or anything. Um, I just sort of sat through it and just thought, oh, probably could have gone see something a bit better and a bit scarier <laughs> than this. It's a bit weird though, isn't it? Because it's not shown in a lot of places at the minute. It's still relatively... I mean, it's treated kind of as if it was some weird world cinema movie. It's not showing in my local uh, cinema world. It's not showing at the Odeon that I go to even. It's just a bit... I don't know. I don't think it's been treated as if it's a mainstream horror. So perhaps the, the kind of people who would normally see it have not been able to get access to it. And only those who really kind of love that genre have been to see it, and therefore they're the kind of audience who might like it anyway. I don't know. Maybe that might account for why it's had such good reviews. But um, Perhaps. Um, I mean, I thought it was, it was quite... I didn't realise it had such a limited release. I thought it was quite widely released, but obviously um, that's not the case. But yeah. No, I haven't I haven't seen it in any of the, any of the cinemas that even I go to. Hmm. You know, and you're in that London, so... In that uh, London, yeah. Exactly. And it, it's had, like, glowing reviews. I haven't read a single bad review. You have now. Um, I have now. Yeah, I have now. <laughs> well, I've heard, I've heard a bad yeah, review. So. 
But um, yeah, I was really surprised because it's not, to be honest, it's not really the sort of thing I would go and watch anyway. But I was surprised not to see it playing so uh, playing as widely. Hmm. Especially for Halloween as well. I would have thought it'd well, be exactly, everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, that that was that. And Owen, you've seen a film called Mr. Turner. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Okay. Firstly, firstly, I'm sure this. I seem to be saying this all the time. I'm sure this will come as no surprise to anybody. Um, I'm hardly an art critic. Okay. I might know a little bit about the films that I like. A little bit about the books that I like. But when it comes to sort of painters and other kinds of artists, I'm pretty, um, well, I mean, let's just say I stopped doing art before GCSE level at school. That's pretty much it. So I know the name Turner. Uh, I know what the Turner Prize is and who it was named after. Uh, and I could probably, after a minute or so of thinking about it, have told you that actually he painted landscapes. That's about the extent of my knowledge of the titular Mr. Turner um, going into Mike Lee's Palm Door nominated period drama. Um, not that it mattered for me so much as it happens, because I mean, I can think of very few moments, uh, if any at all, in the film you'd consider. Uh, exposition, you know, yeah, you know, watching Timothy Spall grunt and sneer his way through a quarter of a century of the famous artist um, Turner's life, told over 150 minutes, you really get a sense of who the man was. Anyway, um, you know what he was like, uh, what he thought of those around him, his flaws and accomplishments, all that that he possessed. There's not really a, a lot that's left unspoken during the final 25 years uh, of his life. However, whilst that side of things might not have been a problem, I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure, if I'd have known a little bit more about his works, uh, which I presented at times during the film without kind of clothing the personality of the man behind them, but if I'd have known uh, his work more, um, well, well, you can scratch that more. If I'd have known his works at all, put it that way, I'm sure it would have given the film an extra dimension. Because um, I watched this uh, right in the centre of Oxford earlier, so, you know, cultured people all around me, what, what, spiffing, all that good stuff. But the, I'm, I'm sure that the, there were a few um, people who were around me who knew a bit more about him, because there were audible gasps at what I presume uh, were paintings of... of, of um, Turners that were being brought to life um, with actual kind of uh, real images rather than just just paintings uh, on a canvas. So you know, I could tell you um, couldn't tell you which paintings specifically, but even to a philistine like me, it looked breathtaking and so painstakingly detailed and captured. Um, a guy called Dick Pope was the cinematographer. For the film, and he actually won the um, Vulcan Prize for Technical Artist at Cannes Film Festival, uh, and deservedly so because it's an absolutely gorgeous film. It's absolutely gorgeous, and Mike Lee as well should almost definitely um, get credit for that too because between them, they've made this early nineteenth-century Dickensian Britain and the sort of the seas around the coast and all that just look beautiful. Um, well, yeah, you know, between the pair of them and, of course, Turner, um, they've done that. But, you know, in a lot of ways, it reminded me of last year's film, The Great Beauty, because he's just this larger-than-life man who can observe the world around him, 
and commentate it on, on the way that he's skilled at, which is obviously through painting. Um, but also whilst participating, uh, in these, these things that he's seeing. So, you know, it's just a ship that's been thrashed by the waves of one of his own ski state, uh, seascapes. You know, he's, he's not a saint. He's not particularly debauched either. You know, he's just a man with his own issues, some intimacy issues. Um, but that's all he is. He's a man with a notepad and a pencil. And that's kind of what Mike Lee's film captures brilliantly. Um, and it is an astonishing performance from Timothy Spall, by the way, um, who uh, also won uh, an award at the Cannes Film Festival, which was Best Actor for this role. Also, deservedly so, because the depth and the versatility he shows in just one one movie, you know, be it the kind of tightening of clenched fists held behind his back, or um, looking to lovingly towards his father, or a tender encounter with a B&B owner, or a breakdown he has, doesn't matter what it is, it, it, he's brilliant, and there's lots of little details of what makes the full picture, and lots of seemingly small movements, or gestures from Spall, together that tell a full story uh, of the man. So yeah, I mean, as you can probably tell, I really enjoyed it, it was good. I got back from seeing it about three hours ago now, um, as we're recording this, it was about three three hours ago, so it's hard for me to really talk about any of the negatives that I might have floating around my head, because I'm still kind of digesting it, really. Um, but I suppose if I was nitpicking on my initial instincts, I... what was that? That was amazing. Someone throwing cans around in the <laughs> Is that Steve's tinny falling out of his hands as, he's, as he drifts asleep? No, just drops no. <laughs> Okay. Um, okay, so if I was nitpicking, um, I didn't really get a sense that 25 years was passing. I only found out that it was a quarter of a century of his life when I got back home and I looked on IMDb and that's what it said of the description. I thought, oh, right, okay, 25 years, didn't realise that. Um, but you can tell time has passed, of course, um, but how much at each point in the plot, I was never really certain. But if it actually made a difference, then I would have mentioned it already. It didn't. It was inconsequential, so it doesn't really matter. But the one time of two and a half hours for the film was also quite excessive. Um, but not wasted either. So, you know, it's kind of... I am nitpicking a little bit. It's a long film. It's good film, but it's long. But it's good. But it's also long. Um, and ultimately, it's a movie and beautiful story. Uh, looks as good as you'd hope it would. Uh, I'm sure fans of Turner's will be... Uh, they'll probably enjoy it as much as, uh, or maybe more so, than a layman like me who just wanted to see a good film. Which is, well, it is. It's a good film. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that rounds up our new release reviews. We're nearly done for the podcast now. Obviously, just our recommendations to come. I'm going to go with a new one that's come on to uh, Netflix UK, and that is Steven Seagal's Under Siege. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't see any more than that. Uh, Carol, uh, are you not allowed to recommend the room? What are you? No, I'm not recommending the room. Don't worry. Um, I've just been looking actually because I was told that it was a short film that I saw last year at London Film Festival. It's online, but I can't find the um, I can't find the actual website for it. So if I find that, I'm going to tweet it. But my recommendation. 
uh, is going to be um, on Sunday morning, I presume, at quarter past midnight on BBC Two's Walkabout, which uh, I watched when I was at school because we we read the book when I was at school, and it's actually um, I, I just found it really really affecting. I watched it. Uh, probably a few years ago as well, and it still really holds up. It's just basically a story about um, two uh, siblings who get lost in the Australian outback, and they find this kind of Aboriginal uh, kid who helps them to survive. And it's it's really good. It's got uh, Jenny Agatha in it, obviously being really really young, because it was in 1970. She's she's the girl. But um, yeah, it was great. Uh, so I totally definitely recommend watching it. Okay, and Owen. Um, I'm gonna pick. Um... From Dusk Till Dawn, which is on Film 4 on Saturday at 11.25pm. Uh, I watched the Mexico Trilogy, his Mexico Trilogy recently, which I think I talked about on the podcast as well uh, earlier in the year. Yeah. Brilliant film. From Dusk Till Dawn, though, trumps any of those. And I really love El Mariachi, but From Dusk Till Dawn, Robert Rodriguez's best film, I think. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that brings an end, then, to uh, this week's failed critics podcast relatively short one by our standards um, but hopefully you'll be back to join us again next week and thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast or contributed to this or the website uh, in any way you can find the website at www.failedcritics.com